Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Hellraiser Bloodline. Sebastian, and I'm here with Jennifer. Hello. And Rodney. Hello again. Woo! Welcome back, Rodney. Thank you. I'm, I'm so sorry that you keep inviting me back. <laughs> well, I have a feeling we're going to be even more sorry, because whenever we have you on to talk on our show, we like to plug your other podcast, Pod Forsaken, by having you do a horror recommendation, a horror movie recommendation. And I already know what you're going to recommend this time. Um, so go ahead and recommend it. So it's this uh, little known film called Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to recommend Terrifier. Wait, you've already recommended Terrifier. You have to recommend Terrifier 2. I recommend both of them. Terrifier 2. Currently, I mean... Depending when you hear this episode, it still might be in theaters, but if not, it's out on streaming. Brand new. Now, full disclosure, Rodney has recommended Terrifier before on this show, and so Jennifer and I sat down to watch Terrifier, and we were not as enthusiastic about it as Rodney is. So let's just quickly argue a little bit sure. about Terrifier. <laughs> Our, my take on Terrifier was that I... Just didn't see what the big deal was. It's a clown that kills people. It's got some good gore, but I don't really see what Terrifier is bringing to the table other than that. And like evil clowns are so over at this point. There's at least 10 slasher movies already just with an evil clown. We've also got Pennywise. Like the evil clowns are friggin' tired. Why is this horror franchise now so beloved by horror fans. Please explain it to me. Well, first of all, I'm going through a little 
a strange crisis of faith because both of my co-hosts on Pod Forsaken, they did not like Terrifier. Neither of you liked it. My wife watched it with me. She walked out of the room because she felt it, she just couldn't take the gore. She didn't really like it, but she did say, I get why you like it, Rodney. And then I showed it to another friend of mine who loves gory movies. He watched the whole thing and he called it trash and said he didn't like it. And yet, when I went... So to a little background, I mean, Terrifier was made for $35,000, super low-budget indie film. And off of that, the writer-director, Damien Leone, he started a Kickstarter to, like, raise funds for a part two. And he raised over $250,000. So he made part two, which is in just is playing in limited theatrical release. Depending where you are in the country, it might not even be playing near you. But when I went here in L.A., it was a mostly packed theater. And I remember looking around being like, fuck yeah. Like, all these people are seeing what I'm seeing. Like, these people like this fucking movie enough to, like, come out for a sequel on, like, a Tuesday night. or was a Monday night. And the sequel is, it's long. It's, like, two hours and 20 minutes. That's insane for a <laughs> slasher movie. Come on. Yeah, but it's good. It really, it moves. I get what you're saying. You can wave your hand and say killer clowns are so played out. But, like, so are haunted houses and slashers. Right, but I want you to explain to me what it is you like about it. You don't have to defend the killer clown. Just explain what you like. I think what I like about it is that, one, Art the Clown, he is just really a clever character in one that he's a mime. And so, like, I don't, I've just never seen a mime killer before, right? But he has this, like, really interesting way of switching between like gleefully playful and malevolently evil right mm -hmm. and so that in turn kind of lets you laugh at the movie while it's like horrifying you okay i get what everyone's saying in that like part one barely has a plot i couldn't discern one that's for sure there's two women and uh, the clown decides i'm gonna kill him and he starts chasing him right and some people get in his way yeah part two is more of like a movie with like a protagonist and like a plot and i don't know it works but I very much enjoy gory slashers. Like, that's my favorite genre to begin with. And I think Terrifier delivers it. I don't know. It's, like, mean, but it's also funny. And there's just something – that scene with Art the Clown in part one where he's in the diner and, like, he's, like, like staring at them and laughing and then he, like, turns all evil. Mm -hmm. That scene is creepy as fuck. And the fact that he just carries around a garbage bag full of weapons, I think that's a great touch. I really genuinely don't get why you guys don't like it, why everyone else I know doesn't like it. But there's also a growing movement of people who are liking it. And the one thing I will point out is that most franchises, they hit big with the first movie. And then the studio is like, let's crank out more. And the audience begins to decline. You guys here on Tentpole are quite familiar with this trend, right? Each movie <laughs> gets fewer and fewer viewers until it dies out, like Hellraiser, which we'll talk about. But Terrifier is going in the opposite direction. It's actually growing an audience. And I think there's something to that. Well, it sounds like it satisfies the gore hounds. I don't think it's unusual that in Los Angeles, you'd go to a screening and it would be reasonably full because you have a strong contingent of horror fans uh, in Los Angeles. So yeah. show me the numbers in Iowa. I mean, I don't have it broken down. I know it's like, look, this is its <laughs> second weekend in release. It's, it's closing in on passing $2 million of a 250 budget. That's eight times what it costs, which I understand... That's not the same as make the nun making $100 million. But you know what I think the real thing is? Is that, like, Terrifier and Terrifier 2, they're, like, made by, like, a real horror fan who really 
like believes in the project mm -hmm. and the viewer can feel that, right? It doesn't feel like a studio made movie that's like trying to hit four quadrants and like, how can we get the most amount of teens in on a date, right? No, this guy is like, I'm gonna fucking make my evil clown movie. I'm gonna fill it with all the sickness in my head. And if you wanna watch it, you can watch it. And when you watch it, it feels like I'm watching something pure. And that's so hard to get these days. That's a fair defense. I think the great thing about the horror genre is there's something for everyone, literally. And, you know, this is something that people are into. And I, I do championship the, the indie spirit of it. And like what you're saying, Rodney, is, you know, this guy really believes in like, you know, this is a he's a super horror fan. And he's like, I'm gonna make my killer clown movie. And I will say also about just seeing Terrifier, the scene where he like rips the woman in two that was something. That is definitely the highlight of the film. Spoiler alert. Oh, well, yeah. Sorry, everyone. But that, when that scene happened, I, my mouth like fell open. And in part two, there's a scene where they're, they're trying to top that. And it is fucking outrageous. Like, there is a scene in part two that even if you guys refuse to watch the whole movie, one day I might just, when it comes out on a video, just tell you to fast forward to see this one scene. We'll watch the stupid movie. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, we have to. We have I'm to. I'm not saying I won't watch it. I'm just saying I reserve the right to not like it. I think if you just keep watching it, you're going to start to like it in the, in the typical Sebastian style. <laughs> Two years from now, we'll be talking about how great Terrifier is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're not here to talk about Terrifier today. We're here to talk about Hellraiser Bloodline, the fourth film in the Hellraiser franchise. And the reason why I wanted to talk about that this month in our Halloween coverage is because we got a new Hellraiser this year for the first time in a while. And it was actually worth talking about, I think. Um, but before we touch upon our feelings on Hellraiser 2022, what is your feelings on the Hellraiser franchise on the whole? I consider myself, first of all, let me start. I'm a huge Clyde Barker fan. Like, maybe the biggest Clyde Barker fan you know personally, right? As for Hellraiser, I... Love the aesthetic and feel of the Hellraiser franchise. Those who are listening don't know that I'm currently wearing a Hellraiser shirt. I have multiple versions of the box from Hellraiser. I've got, like, pinhead art. I have a pinhead shirt. Having said that, I've only seen Hellraiser 1 through 4, one of the direct-to-video sequels, and the new Hulu film. So there's a number – there's, like, four or five Hellraiser films I've never actually seen – so I don't know if that actually makes me a real fan or not. And there's all the comics, which I've not read either. I can relate to what Rodney's saying. I really like the aesthetic. You know, I'm a big fan of the uh, puzzle box, the lament configuration. We have um, a lamp in our living room that lights up. That's a, a, the lament configuration box. And we also have pillows <laughs> that have the um, pattern on there as well. So I, I just like... Um, the way they look. I like the world. I am familiar with, most familiar with one through three. Um, I've seen four now twice. And Sebastian did remind me that we did watch five once. And of course, the the new one, which I, I did like quite a bit. So um, yeah, Rodney, I have also have not watched the rest of the direct-to-video ones. And I don't think I ever will. I have watched all the direct-to-video ones because I'm a franchise completist above all other things. <laughs> I agree pretty much with both of you guys. I am a fan of the world of Hellraiser. I like the imagery associated with it. 
I enjoy Doug Bradley's performance as Pinhead. I do prefer the first four films to the later direct to video films. I'm not like necessarily the world's biggest Clive Barker fan, although I have read a lot of his books at this point. I read The Hellbound Heart, which is shockingly true to the movie, which he also directed, so that makes sense. <laughs> I enjoy the franchise. It's one of those things that I've come to sort of appreciate more as I've gotten older. I saw the original Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 in in the theater as a teenager we had a theater that we could get into r-rated movies and uh, my friends and i went and saw it i remember not liking the original hellraiser at all because it's so adult like when you're a teenager and you're into freddy krueger and michael myers you think pinhead's gonna show up and just start killing people with pins or something you know like you have no idea that it's this weird psychosexual drama really so it completely threw us off as teenagers, but then Hellraiser 2 was kind of more in line with what we wanted at that time. And so I actually preferred Hellraiser 2, and I think I still kind of do to this day because I just think it's a little more fun. I have come to love Hellraiser 3 for all the wrong reasons, just because I think it's so ridiculous. I mean, there's a friggin' Cenobite that shoots CDs at people That's and right. a camera Cenobite. Like, how do you not love that? That's amazing. And I do appreciate the original Hellraiser a lot now and have seen it multiple times, including in the theater again and all that. And so I've really come to appreciate that movie and how strange and unique it is. But yeah, I've seen all of the sequels especially the direct-to-video ones, are all terrible. Spoiler, there's a few of them that have the exact same plot, and it's the plot to Jacob's Ladder, where some shitty human being is trying to unravel this mystery that is vaguely tangentially connected to like the lament configuration, and then at the end, oh my god, I've been dead the whole time, and I'm in hell, and then Pinhead shows up and for like one minute, and poor Doug Bradley just keeps getting chubby and chubbier <laughs> so like pinhead is apparently eating pretty well in hell as the series goes on and then by the end they just start doing like really low budget trash just to hold on to the rights so when this new one came out i was pretty excited because i feel like hellraiser is a franchise and a concept that could easily be reinvented for the modern day and done well. Easily. So, Rodney, how did you feel about Hellraiser 2022? I liked it. I, I did. I I have some complaints. I thought I was getting an actual reboot of the Hellraiser film, right? Like the first film. So once it started, I was like, oh, I see. This is this is just like Hellraiser 11. This is just a new Hellraiser film, which I, I let that go, but I really went in thinking I would get the story of, you know, I can't think of it. Frank and, and Julia and Frank yes. and all them. I let that go though. I thought the box, the new design of the box and the way it's got the different configurations is awesome. I thought uh, all the acting was pretty good. I loved all the the visual effects of like when hell opens up and they come out of the ground and the walls and stuff. I appreciate that they did practical effects, but I think the Cenobites, they don't look right. I, I like the design like on paper. I think it's cool. They're like flesh dresses or whatever. But as an overall, just like note across the whole film, I feel like it's missing that like dank, wet feeling that comes with a Hellraiser film. Like even the Cenobites peeled flesh isn't like glistening. It just looks like they're in these like plastic bodysuits and it just kept taking me out of it. 
that, and there's like the billionaire with like the sewing machine embedded in him, which looked so dumb. It, it like it looked yeah. painfully stupid. Having said all that, I really dug the ending. If they make another one, I would watch it. I just feel like they just missed the thing that makes Hellraiser feel like Hellraiser, even though it has the box and the Cenobites in it. How did you feel about the new Pinhead? I thought she's great. I thought she was really cool. She's unfortunately not as good as Doug Bradley because he's so fucking good. But I really enjoyed her. And I found myself being like, I wish there was actually more of her in the movie, even though she's in a lot of it. So they got that was the that's the key piece. I feel like the key pieces are Pinhead in the box and they got those things dead on. Uh, what did you guys think of it? I liked it quite a bit. We were talking about it afterwards and I was saying, I you know, I just usually in the Hellraiser movies, most of the people that get killed deserve it in a way. If you want to, you know, play that judge and jury type thing, I guess you're like you're, or you're not really sad about them getting killed but in this case like there there were quite a few people where i was like they, that, she didn't deserve that so um that was that was interesting because most of the time it's usually kind of shitty people doing shitty things that the cenobites come for i liked it a lot in general i definitely have complaints similar to you rodney i felt it went on too long yeah at the end it felt like they didn't really know how to wrap it up and instead of having everything come together and a bunch of things happening concurrently to build to a satisfying conclusion all the things happened, but it would be like one after the other and after the other when it should have been more like the lament configuration and it all connected into an interesting final puzzle. I did really like Jamie Clayton as the new pinhead. I think she's great. Hope she sticks around. I thought the general story and acting was all pretty decent. I feel like the new movie kind of like forgets the hell part of Hellraiser. Like it never feels like hell has come right yeah like i miss all the hallways dripped with like draped with like like skin and blood and chains right yeah yeah like there's a part where you see like the ground opens up and you see the labyrinth down under the ground and i was like oh that's cool but like it just that was missing for me which is a common complaint against the film that in general the gore is not very high right and like there's not a lot of scenes of people like having their skin like pulled away from their cheek by hooks right and like as a Terrifier fan, yeah, that's what I want out of the Hellraiser movie. I don't really care how many – if you just told me, did you hear the new the new uh, Hellraiser film only has Pinhead? There's no Cenobites in it? I'd be like, that's totally fine. Will people be getting pulled apart by chains? Yes, I'm in. It, it they got they just missed it, but I still enjoyed it. I'm always there for Chatterer, and Chatterer did show up in this, so I was down for it. I do think that it looked good, but it did have that sort of digital Netflix movie look yep. to it, which I think is kind of playing into a little what you're saying, Rodney. Like it didn't have the atmosphere of the original movies, yeah, because I think that atmosphere is really hard to get on like red cameras or whatever whatever they do to make you know netflix movies or whatever whatever the process is there it just doesn't lend itself to grimy gritty shit i guess yeah i don't know i mean part of i just think what makes a hellraiser film feel that way is the feeling of like i don't know grime and dirt and grease and just ickiness and icky feel what makes hellraiser one the original set feel so good and the reason you hate it when you saw it with your teen friends is because like it feels like a snuff film like it feels like right. clive barker 
literally like murdered people in that house and summoned a demon, right? Yeah. And and I think that's why people responded to it so well because it just felt so different in the same way that Texas Chainsaw Massacre felt so different when it came out, right? But of course, as we'll get to Bloodline, with each movie, they're like, let's increase the budget a bit. Let's make the let's pinhead a bigger character. And it starts losing those things until you get to today where it's just like, oh, I, I forgot about the feeling that Hellraiser created. All right. Well, let's talk about Hellraiser Bloodline from 1996, directed by Alan Smithy. And if you don't know who Alan Smithy is, this basically answers all of your questions on why did this fail? Because the person who directed this movie, whose real name is Kevin Yeager, was so upset with how it turned out that he wanted his name taken off the movie. And back in the 90s, when people wanted their name taken off movies, and this dates back to the 80s and maybe even the 70s, they would put the name Alan Smithy on the film as just a generic name that nobody really has in real life, giving credit to no one for directing this movie. It was also directed in part by Joe Chappelle, who came in and did extensive reshoots on the movie. And he's the director of Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, which we will also be discussing this month on Tentpole Trauma. So there is a connection here. Now, interestingly, this movie started off with the best of intentions. Like Clive Barker was involved. He developed the story. This whole thing with this these three different stories going concurrently was all his idea. He got Peter Atkins involved, who had written um, a couple of the other movies. And so this wasn't a giant clusterfuck from the beginning. I haven't read the original script, but apparently the original script is pretty decent by many people's accounts. Funny you bring it up because I have read it and I read it just for this podcast. Wow. So uh, for anyone who cares, you can actually, so the the writer who, sorry, you said his name, Peter Atkins. Uh, I'm showing it to you, but you can't see it. Awesome. You can only hear nice. me showing this book. But if you go on Amazon, basically Peter Atkins, so many people have asked him, like, yo, what happened to Hellraiser Bloodline that he published the original screenplay? And you can go on Amazon, you can just buy it. And so I actually read it. And obviously we'll talk about the movie as it exists. But I will say the screenplay is pretty close to the movie we watched. Okay. Because <laughs> I read this script thinking, oh boy, I can't wait to see what it was supposed to happen, right? And... You know, France, present day, spaceship, all there, Angelique. <laughs> so I can, I will, we, uh, later after we talk, I can tell you the things that are different, but it's not, I'd say it's like 80% the same movie. One of the big factors involved here is this was made by Miramax, which was owned by the Weinsteins, and they are famous for, they're famous for lots of horrible things, but one of the more horrible things they were famous for was butchering foreign movies that they would buy and butchering the horror movies that they were developing. So apparently when this movie started to come in, they demanded more Pinhead. So this movie has a fuck ton of Pinhead in it. Like yes. if you love Pinhead and you want to see Pinhead talking, man, you get a fuck ton of it. Yeah. He is in this movie more than any other Hellraiser movie. And that was specifically because the Weinsteins demanded it. And you can kind of see that in the movie, how that's kind of screwing things up. I recently rewatched part three as well in prep for this. 
And I was looking at Pinhead, and I was like, why does he look so bad? Like, he just looks bad. And apparently for part three, they decided to use a, a prosthetic makeup method that was quicker to put on, right? And the director of this film, whether it's the original director, or the, I guess the original director, they shot those things. What's his name again? You already said it, but... It's Kevin Yeager. Kevin Yeager. He's a visual effects artist, and he was like, I want to go back to the way it was in part one and two, because it just looks better. And I, I do think that Pinhead looks way better in Bloodline than in Part 3. I think he looks great in this film. And I personally do like every scene of him talking. I just, I'm here for Pinhead talking. Yeah, who's not here for Pinhead, right? So, like, say what you want, Merrimack's got that one right. I do think put more Pinhead in your movie is a good note. I think the best way to talk about this movie is to just divide it into the three parts and we'll just kind of talk about each section uh, without going scene by scene. But before we get into that, we should at least talk about the way the movie is set up because it's set up with this wraparound story. Again, similar to last episode when we talk about In the Mouth of Madness, we have a like interview style wraparound where the main character is going to be interviewed by another character and then they're going to tell the story that we're going to see, very interview with a vampire. But we get this opening scene in space. The year is 2127. And the character of Merchant, who's also going to be called Le Marchand in the French story, played by Bruce Ramsey, who is a real nothing burger of a lead, unfortunately. (laughs) He just gives you nothing. He just sort of stares there. But anyway, he's on this ship called the Minos, which if you're familiar with Greek mythology... Minos was the island which the Minotaur was on, so I think they're just trying to evoke the labyrinth that way. Anyway, what I do love about this really silly opening scene is he's got this Terminator robot that's like doing the puzzle box for him, which is kind of an ingenious idea, really. Like, some of the ideas in this movie, I think, are super fun. Unfortunately, it doesn't look that great because you can tell the robot doesn't really work. And then they cut to this really bad lawnmower man style CG of the fingers doing the box and stuff. But I do like the idea here. I think it's a cool idea. Yeah, right. Like the idea is he's he, he wants to summon the demons into this like steel enclosed room so they can't get out. So he's using the robot. I think that's a great idea. Although, like, based on everything I know about Hellraiser, it seems like the demons can't be confined to a room because there's walls. I know. Since when do walls matter to them? I don't know why he thinks that's going to do anything. I won't interject throughout about this, but I will say in the screenplay, here's the big difference. There is no wraparound story. In the original script, it just starts in, in Paris, it goes to present, and then... In the last act, you're just suddenly now in space, right? But this whole thing with the robot, that's that's in the script. This is one of the things they did they did the reshoots on, are the scenes of the wraparound story and him like interjecting throughout. And I get that because like it would be really weird to be watching a Hellraiser movie and an hour and ten minutes in you suddenly go to a spaceship in twenty one thirty. Yeah. So I, I agree with their instinct to be like, let's use that. Having said that, this lead actor is terrible. I was actually like thinking, did they forget to audition? Did they owe him like like a favor? Like, I get that you can't get Brad Pitt to be in your Hellraiser movie, but like there's a lot of actors in Hollywood who are very talented for a low price. And they went with this guy. He almost single-handedly ruins the movie. He's so bad that there are points in the movie where I think he's been dubbed, but I don't think he was. (laughs) 
Yeah. It's like he, he's acting so bad that his dialogue isn't matching with his mouth just naturally. I, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. He's talking and you're like, is it is this an error or is he just – I don't even know how that would be physically possible. But I wish I could just recast – everyone else in the movie is fine, but he is – as the lead actor who's in every fucking minute of the movie, it's a gigantic blunder. 100% agreed. Um, and I'm I'm fine with everybody else. Oh, there's one other person I'm not fine with, but we'll get to them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll save that as a surprise. These, I don't know, space marines or somebody comes in to the space station to stop him for some reason. I don't know why they're there or why they care. They've gone all the way to space to stop this guy from playing with his robot or whatever. But then we're introduced to the character of Rimmer. And I didn't write down the actress's name. Apology to her. I just love her character name, Rimmer. <laughs> Is this a sly Clive Barker sex joke in this character's name? I didn't even think of it like that. Because I'm not a pervert. Well, Remmer is nay, is played by Christine Harnos. Well, thank you for your service, Christine Harnos. <laughs> She's not very good either. She's okay. She's not as bad as Bruce Ramsey. Bruce Ramsey is a lament configuration <laughs> hole in the middle of this movie. But yeah, so then they burst in. They stop him from fiddling anymore with his box. And, you know, meanwhile, <laughs> Pinhead and crew, I guess, are just hanging out in that room, not doing anything while he tells his story. First of all, I don't know why in either version he doesn't just say like, hey, I know you don't believe me. Go go look at that camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. on camera 17, you'll see a bunch of demons. I trapped them in that room over there. Also, like, <laughs> did he not like record it? Right. He could have like even done a playback and been like, look, I'm not lying. To answer your other question, I think it is implied. I think one of the one of the Marines says something about how like all the crew is gone or something. But like, right. The answer to your question is basically in the original screenplay, basically his space station has been radio silent for like six months and he's been working on this. Gotcha. And that's why they send a crew. And in the original script, they actually have a guy who part of that crew who's his replacement. And he does that thing. And like Bruce Ramsey would say, like, I'm in charge here. And so the other guy goes, not anymore. I'm taking over. Right. So there is an answer to your question, uh, but it's not handled well in the film. I really appreciate this uh, filling in with the original screenplay, Rodney. So thank you. No joke. <laughs> I, I asked for this. I asked for the original screenplay for my birthday last year, and I got it. And then I just been sitting on the shelf. And then when you guys asked me to come on here, I was like, if, if I'm ever going to actually read it, now's the time. I think it's good, too, that you're adding this to it because this movie clearly has been butchered in many ways. You can feel things are missing. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's one of those movies to the point where at some points it gets almost incomprehensible because you're like, I know they've taken out something important here. Like this whole next sequence that we're going to talk about, we jump to Paris in 1796 and now Bruce Ramsey is playing Le Marchand, who is a toy maker. He's just a normal, nice toy maker, but apparently he's like the most genius toy maker in all of Paris, France. And he's making a toy for this Marquis de Sade stand-in guy, totally obviously based on the Marquis de Sade. I forget the actual character's name. It's like Marquis de Lyle. Something like that, yeah. They should have just called him Marquis de Sade. Quit dancing around it. We know who this guy's supposed to be. So for whatever reason, this toy he makes is going to be the perfect thing to open up the gates of hell like he's just this nice dude who's got no 
stake in the game of like bringing demons to hell and it's never explained why this toy is now going to become the lament configuration is there anything in the script that sheds light on that yeah here's a minor difference in the original script angelique basically already exists at this point like the the marquis de sade guy he's already summoned her using dark magic and so when the toy maker shows up she's already there and she's like i'm the one who like commissioned you to build this box right and she takes the box and like kisses it and then says like now it's ready as though like she needed to imbue it with her evil power gotcha and one of the things that's sort of missing from the movie that's throughout the script is that she wants him to make more boxes right like the more boxes there are the more gateways that can be opened or whatever but in both versions i totally agree there's no reason why it's like I don't even know how you ask for that, right? Like, listen, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to I'd like you to make a toy. Well, what would it be? I need it to be like kind of like a little box with little gears that move around and like, you know, kind of opens the gate to hell. I'm sorry, what was that last part? No, no, it just opens the gate to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can do that. Like it I appreciate them showing how the box was made. I think that's cool. Like I love him like tinkering with it and getting the origin of the box. But both in the movie and the script, it kind of at least in the script there's a scene where she makes it like she activates it. Whereas in the movie, he sort of shows up and it seems like the Marquis just like takes it. He's like, thank you. And he sets it down and doesn't use it, right? Well, it's great too, because when the toy maker presents the box to his wife, she's like, it doesn't do anything. Yeah. No, that was the best. I really enjoyed seeing him also. I agree with Rodney, you know, putting this thing together. And then, yeah, his wife comes in and she's like, is it done? And then, like, he's showing her, you know, what it does. And she, yeah, she's basically just shits all over it. And he's like, I'm going to go bring it to the marquee now. And she's like, it's near midnight. He's like, I'm going to go where my work is appreciated. (laughs) So, like... (laughs) pissed about it and i also just really enjoy that throughout the film pinhead and the and angelique and he's just the toy maker that's it like no one he's not john he's not merchant or whatever merchant it's just like toy maker that's like they they recognize him the entire throughout all of time he's just the toy maker i do like that but that would have helped honestly as flimsy as what you're describing is Rodney that would have at least given me some explanation like okay it's been blessed by a demon so now it's like a key that can open the gates to hell like I could roll with that the fact that we get nothing it's just they commissioned a toy that can open the gates of hell like okay yeah it's one of those things you just have to like squint at I guess right I mean, if I recall in the movie, right, he doesn't use it in summoning Angelique, right? No. No, Angelique is brought there by Adam Scott. (laughs) Man, I forgot Adam Scott's in this. Yes, that's right. Parks and Rec's lovable Adam Scott in his first film role as this creepy sidekick to the marquee, Jacques is his name. And uh, yeah, it is a bizarre, if you're familiar with modern Adam Scott, I mean, Severance, he's a decent dramatic actor. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve or belong in this movie. It's just weird because, you know, his career since has really centered more around comedy than this kind of thing. Even, I mean, even in Severance, which is heavier, it's like he's still charming. You know, it's like he still has that charm. And so I think that's more of what we're reacting to is this like, 
There's Jacques, who is devoid of all charm. And yeah, he's procured poor Angelique. Like he's brought her literally to the table with a marquee. And they're like, oh, poor Angelique, an orphan. No one to, you know, basically miss her or whatever. We're, you know, it's just like, no one's going to notice that you're gone, Angelique. Here we go. Yeah, she's a peasant that they found. They basically flay her of her skin mm-hmm. i think he does use the box doesn't he use the box to like tear her apart or whatever and then i think a demon inhabits her skin or something like that all i know is they skin her and they hang her skin up on chains and then like a demon like fills into the skin yeah. which yeah i think it's a cool scene i i dig it I, yeah. I I obviously we could go back and watch and see exactly how the box is using that scene. I think you're right. I don't think they use the box there. They just hang her on chains, which I think is supposed to be our visual indicator of like why later on chains yeah. come flying out at people. Well, she's she's like sitting at the table and she's like chowing down and then all of a sudden everything turns Rotten. I didn't understand that. Yeah, like it, it said that the Marquis is like a master magician. And so the idea is like he's into the dark arts and stuff. And I get that. But does he just have a bunch of rotten food and he casts a spell to make it look good? Like, or is the idea is that it suddenly went rotten in the space of like 10 seconds? I don't think it could go either way. But I feel like I've seen that before and other things where it's like, you know, people come in and they're eating something and then all and it looks like it's this wonderful feast. And then all of a sudden you really see what it is. Like when you go to Sizzler. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since we're talking about her, how do you guys feel about Valentina Vargas as Angelique since she's such a major part of this movie? I don't think she's very good. She's also pretty painful. She's doing her best with it. She's not nearly as bad as Bruce Ramsey in the lead. I guess there are moments where I like her, but there's just something a little fake about the performance. Um, I like her. I don't know why. I just, I do. And maybe when you make me watch this a couple more times, I'll like her even more. She's got something. I don't know. The camera, it works with her. I think she's good in this role. I'll sort of split the difference between you two. She's in many ways trying to fulfill the Julia role, right? Like that's kind of how she's used in this story. She's somewhere between Julia and Pinhead, I guess, Mm because she is a demon, but she's doing the whole seduce people. We're going to see that later in the movie. So I think she's doing a credible job is what I would say without being great you know what i mean it's like okay i can buy her but at the same time she's not magnetic or anything the way like doug bradley is i wouldn't care to see more of this character in further hellraiser movies no. that's what i'm saying is like if you told me the next hellraiser film would be all about her i'd be like i mean i'll watch it but i'm not excited i wasn't trying to say like i want more angelique i'm just fine with her in this film well that's how it's coming across jen <laughs> Now, this story feels really cut down. I have to imagine there's way more of this in the script. This is the part of the script or the movie that is the most cut, I would say. In the original script, when the toy maker shows up, there's actually like these eight dudes playing poker, right? And Angelique basically gives them the box. She like takes it from the toy maker and gives it to them and is like, for each time you solve one of the steps, I'll like take off some clothes, right? And so there's this whole sequence where like they're passing the box around and playing with it and she's like stripping seductively until of course the box opens and they all get slaughtered, right? And so they had to cut those eight kills. And then they also, she has this like troop of like, What's the term for clowns back in the day? You know, like a troop of... Terrifiers? (laughs) There's like eight art the clowns. 
You know, like, you know how there's different types of clown types? There's like Jesters. The, the Punchinello, the whatever, right? There's Harlequins. The there we go. Harlequins, right? There's like a tr- group of them who, in this movie, there's a scene where Bruce Ramsey or whatever, La Marchand, goes to like talk to his doctor friend who's like cutting open a body, right? And he gives him the idea to like make a different box. So in the script, there's a scene where that doctor is like, walking home through the woods and he's attacked by this traveling group of devil clowns that like grab him nice and they open a portal to hell which is like a spinning wheel of teeth and they throw him into it cool and so all of that obviously was cut and then there's a lot more of the marquee and like you see how jacques turns on him whereas which i actually forget what happens exactly but in the movie he's just like found dead right no he's not dead yet he's got like barbed wire around his mouth and he's laying in a chair and the toy maker comes in as he's approaching the marquee the marquee suddenly comes back to life it's implied that he's been i don't know wrapped up in wire or something like that but we don't see it it's just sort of implied right well the toy maker's trying to get the puzzle box back is what he's reaching in and it's like covered in you know a bunch of worms and like giant caterpillars or something, which was a choice. Big green caterpillars, which were odd. It was odd. But yeah, he looks like he's definitely got like the, like Sebastian said, the barbed wire like around his mouth and he's just kind of laying there and he like comes to for a minute and then I think he dies. So he's been tortured. That part is, is really skimmed over. It's really, it, that's one of those moments in the movie where it feels like something is missing. Cause like big time, one minute the marquee is like, I summoned a demon and suddenly now he's, He's like basically dead and Adam Scott's in charge. And it's like, what what happened there? That is covered in the script more. The way the whole segment ends is then just, I don't know. I think they attack Le Marchand or something. And then his wife comes to the house looking for him and he's just comes to the door and he's all dying. Yeah. He's like, protect our child because she's pregnant and she's going to carry on the bloodline, which is, you know, obviously the title of the movie. But I I even forget what happened or, like, what happens to him. Like, Angelique is, like, having sex with Adam Scott. Mm-hmm. And then she, like, knows that the toy maker has arrived and he's, like, got the box. And she attacks him. Doesn't she stab him? Yes. Right. She stabs him. I think ultimately in the original script, there's just more of Angelique, like, seducing the toy maker. Like, she's promising him riches and sex if he'll come back and make more boxes. And his wife is growing jealous of that, right? And so that's why she comes to the house to, like, stop him from making a mistake. Whereas in this movie, you kind of forget that he has a wife and she just, like, suddenly shows up at the house. In the script, there was, like, a homeless dude. You know how there's, like, the homeless guy in part one? Yep. There's this homeless dude, like, wandering the streets and she gives him the box. And it's implied that's how it gets out into the world. Okay. Not an important plot point. But this whole sequence just feels truncated. Like, you get it. Like, you know, he he makes a box, he gets killed, and his wife gets away with his, his unborn child. That's like what needs to happen. It just feels like they ran out of money and time. It just feels like this section needed a couple more like kills in it, right? Do you don't even see the marquee die, do you? No. It's odd. Yeah, it's like he's like going to die. I mean, he's definitely like in bad shape, but we don't see how he gets to that and we don't even necessarily see him die for certain. Like he just kind of nods back off. As I recall, like they they mentioned this in the movie. There's like the the de- Angelique says something about like I I serve you as long as I don't as long as you don't get in hell's way, right? Mm-hmm. And I think in the script 
the marquee like says something and he won't, like, won't let her do what she wants and that's why she kills him that basically is why adam scott gets killed in the next segment in 1996 yeah so they probably cut that because it's repetitive right yeah because he does exactly the same thing he won't let her do what she wants to do and so she jabs her hand into his stomach and she wants to go to america because that's where right. merchant whatever he's going by now is he's, he's a big architect so it's been like 200 years or 100 years at least since then, right? Because it's like 96. 200 get... years. Okay. I thought it was 200 years when we ended up in space. They from from 1796 to 1996. Okay. So it's been 200 years. And I was like, why does Adam Scott still look the same? He still gets to just be, I guess, because he's with her. You know, it's you're a vampire now, essentially, once you've given yourself over to okay. the minions of hell. I assume one of the... Like, whatever. It's not like he gets wishes, but one of the things of having a demon is, like, she keeps you youthful, right? Okay. Through, like, de- through like fun, energetic demon sex. Well, I'm going to go find a demon. <laughs> yeah. I can make some recommendations. In the script, he actually dies differently because she, the exact same scene plays out, but when he basically says, he, when he gets in Hell's Way, she, like, waves her hand, and then he ages instantly, kind of like in, oh. in, in a... Indiana Jones 3. Like he turns into like a shriveled old man and then falls into a pile of dust. That would have worked for me. I would have loved to see that. Probably too expensive, right? And so they're like, what if she just like carves them up, right? I'm sitting there and I I was watching the movie and I was like, her biggest concern is like, yo, I want to stop the toy maker's bloodline because he's going to make the box that like undoes everything. But I also want him to make more boxes. It's sort of like she wants both. But also, what has she been doing for 200 years? This is the problem, though, with every story that does this. When you have these immortal characters that are just sitting around twiddling their thumbs for 200 years, like waiting for the MacGuffin to come back, like it's always a little hard to justify. Yeah. Especially so in this movie. But I mean, what we're to assume in this movie is now we're jumping to 1996 and now Merchant is becoming a big deal because he's this genius architect and he's shown up on this magazine cover. And like, that's what she's showing to Adam Scott. She's like, there he is. He's come back. His bloodline has, you know, reincarnated him or whatever. And now he's going to make the box or whatever. So I think that they've just been waiting for him to reappear in public, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I look, I'll buy that. Like, you know, it takes a couple generations of Le Marchands or merchants to like give birth to one who's like, is good enough to build boxes, you know, like maybe like, you know, the, the, the dude's father was just a big fucking loser. Right. And then right. <laughs> his son turns out to be a great architect and she's like, ah, that's the one I want. It'd be better that than every Marchand is a genius. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, it's like, I don't really care about it. It's not a, it doesn't really hurt the movie. It's like, you know, I get it. Like, we're cutting to present day. I thought that was, and I remember being in the theater being like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, and this is one of the things I like about the movie. I like this, like, triple time period thing. I think that's a cool idea. I like it too. Yeah. Well, another aspect of Merchant now in 1996 is he's a family man. And he is married to Kim Myers from A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, a.k.a. not Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Yep. She looks shockingly like Meryl Streep. And his son is my least favorite, most favorite child <laughs> actor of the 90s, Cortland Mead. Man, oh man, we got to talk about Cortland <laughs> fucking Mead. 
because if you haven't seen the 97 straight to TV remake of The Shining, and I don't recommend that you do watch it, but if you've seen it, you know him as Danny Torrance from that. This kid was also in a ton of other movies. Like I think he's in The Little Rascals. He's the most obnoxiously chipmunk cheeked little fucker. <laughs> and I just want to say, Cortland Mead, if you're out there and you hear this, please do not take offense because child actors are never to blame for, you know, their hateful personalities that come across on screen. This blood is on the hands of the directors that use them. But man, I just love to hate Cortland Mead so much. His face just bugged the shit out of me all throughout the 90s. He kept showing up in that Shining remake. He's like, Daddy! the whole friggin remake and then he does it in this movie too and it's just like oh man this kid i mean i kind of hate him but i kind of love him like whenever he shows up i'm like Cortland mead first of all he's not very good but he's a little i mean he's a little kid in this movie he's gotta be like what eight or nine years old like i can't hold acting against him of course not but again i will say that like LA is a big city. There are other options. You can try out. You can have auditions, they're called. I don't know if people know about auditions. People made this movie clearly didn't. <laughs> but the whole time I was watching it, I couldn't figure out how I know this kid. And you're right. It's the Shining remake, which I only saw one time when it came out. And uh, I don't think we need to talk about how I feel about that. All I know is that Stephen, Stephen King loved it. It's because he has those fucking cheeks. Yeah. He's got giant eyes and these cheeks that look like they're literally stuffed with acorns. <laughs> and he's got like chipmunk teeth. And he is just so incredibly hateful. But I, again, I just, I always love when Cortland Mead shows up. I love to hate him. He doesn't really do anything in this movie he just runs around he gets taken by pinhead at one point for uh, i guess for ransom purposes but anyways i'll stop ranting about Cortland mead but i'm just glad that we got a chance to talk about him because he's an important figure in 90s horror important is strong he's in a couple <laughs> 90s horror films <laughs> now one thing that i do want to talk about here and I'm hoping there is an explanation offered in the screenplay that you read, Rodney. Okay, so we get Angelique doing the Julia thing where she seduces some schlubby dude and she like brings him down to like the basement of this building that Merchant has designed or whatever. Yep. And while she's down there, at one point she literally punches a cement pylon that's down there mm -hmm. and pulls out the lament configuration what is going on? Well, when's the last time you watched part three? I have watched it within the last year. You clearly have forgotten that the very end of part three, the heroine, there's, she's at a construction site and she buries the box in like a puddle of like drying cement. Oh. Okay. And then it cuts to like later and the building is finished. I remember the building, but I don't remember the box being put in the foundation. So now if you actually think about how construction works, it wouldn't be in the middle of that pillar. But whatever. The idea is that the last time we saw the box, it was put inside a what was going to become a pillar, I guess. I am satisfied by that answer. Didn't even need to read the script for that one. <laughs> All right. Well, my bad. I should have rewatched part three. So I understood that detail. I told you, Sebastian, we should have watched one through three in yeah. preparation for this. And we had so many Halloween franchise movies to watch, though. We couldn't get to it. 
That's true. I guess the rule is just that like demons are not allowed to use the box, right? So she lures that that schlubby dude down there to make him play with the box, right? And and again, like I don't even remember that that happens in the script. I think it it actually comes off better in the movie. I think what whoever it was at Miramax that was like, I want more hooks in people pulling flesh. That delivers more in the movie version than the script version. And so this dude's death, I think, is great. I love the effect of, like, hooks in a face pulling the skin away, and then it, like, drags him off into the wall. And when I was watching the movie, part of me was like, I don't know, some strange woman's like, you want to come down to the basement with me and, like, play a weird game? And part of me was like, don't ever do that. And then I was like, I would easily fall for that. I would <laughs> I would 100%. In fact, I have a running joke with my wife. That's not a joke. I was like, if the box were real, I would totally play with it. And she's like, Rodney, don't ever do that. And I was like, you kidding? They have such sights to show me. <laughs> I, I kind of just wonder if after like, I don't know, a thousand years of being tortured, if it does start to feel good and you start to go like, you know... I see why you like this guy. Well, you know, that's the age old question. You know, it's Homer Simpson with the donuts in hell where he's just getting fed the donuts (laughs) over and over. Like at what at what point do the donuts become not pleasurable? (laughs) (laughs) A very long time if it's donuts. Well, let's talk about Pinhead, because this is where Pinhead is summoned, correct? Like, he shows up here, and so we're going to get a lot of Pinhead. And I feel like they're trying to set up this adversarial relationship with Pinhead and Angelique, but I'm not really quite tracking it. What is their problem with each other? Like, aren't they kind of on the same side here? And he keeps calling her princess. Because she's a princess of hell. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He has, there's a line in the movie where he says like something like it's easier to get humans to like go along through pain instead of temptation. Right. Right. Yeah. This is definitely like a much bigger theme in the original script. The idea is that she used to basically have his job in hell. Right. And for the longest time, she ran a game of temptation. She was all about tempting humans and seducing them to do her thing. And then when she got summoned to our world by the guy in the 1700s, Pinhead basically, well, Pinhead didn't exist until like, according to the movies anyway, right? He didn't even exist until what the... He's from uh, the World War One. World War One, right. Oh, that's right. Well, anyway, when, once he took over, he, he, I guess, instituted a a more like forceful pain uh, kind of regime. It was described in Wikipedia as being orderly. Like the difference between the two of them is he had an orderly vision of hell, which makes sense because he's very segmented and he's got the pins all nice and neat in him. And, you know, her version of hell was way more chaotic. Yeah. And that's, that's like, again, it's touched upon more in the script. It definitely comes across that they don't like each other, right? It's, she's very much like, let me do it my way. I'll get this guy. So they're basically two managers arguing yes. over like how to run the company. Exactly. It's a power struggle. But it doesn't come across great in the movie. It seems like they're just like sort of old friends who haven't seen each other in a while, but he also doesn't like her. Well, it doesn't come across great. And also the movie just forgets about her for yes. like 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's Pinhead doing all the work, going through the building, pulling out the chains and doing everything. And it's like, where's Angelique? We were commenting on that while we were watching it. And then she does show up Yes, again near the end of the segment. But for like 20 minutes, she is gone. And that is totally because of the reshoots, I'm sure. Not entirely. A lot of the same shit happens in this segment. It's like basically what she wants. There's that scene in the movie where... They're, like, in the lobby of the building, and, like, the lobby looks like the box. 
And I got to tell you, it looks like a pretty bad set. Can we agree on that? Like the, the moving gears on the wall look real. It looks like a high school dance, right? Like with a Hellraiser theme. I want to go to that dance. That would be an awesome high school dance. I would have really <laughs> been into the prom or homecoming or whatever, <laughs> the Hellraiser theme. <laughs> we have such sights to show you all in glitter. Oh my <laughs> God, this is wonderful. Enchantment under the chains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please, some teenager do this, please. Did you ever see that? Or I don't know if it was a video, but like a high school put on a production of Alien where they like like did the whole movie Alien with like very good special effects. Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't That's seen wonderful. it. I would love to see a, like a Hellraiser, <laughs> either Bloodline or the original high school play. That'd be great. <laughs> either way, basically what they realize is that and like, like Hellraiser, or sorry, Pinhead says in the movie, um, this is like a coming Holocaust or something like that, right? Yes. Yes. And they, they basically are like, yo, your lobby is just like a really big version of the box. So like if we open it, it would just open a permanent gateway to hell, right? Like we won't have to do like one at a time through people using the box. And in the script, there's more of Angelique like trying to like seduce him into just doing what she wants. And then he basically is like, I can't. I love my wife. And that's when Pinhead is like, fuck this. I'll just use creepy dogs and shit to get what I want. And he straight up does kidnap his son in the script. All that plays out the same. So she does not want him to make the Elysium configuration, Correct. which is the configuration that's going to use light to, I guess, close the gate of hell or destroy Pinhead. Yeah, we didn't really talk about this because in the 1700s segment, you see the toy maker like sketch. He gets his idea from his friend, the 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 doctor, that maybe yes. he can un he can make a box that does the opposite thing. And so he's like sketching what's called the Elysium configuration. So no, it's like like I said, it's weird because you got a you got a weird plot problem here where what they want is they basically want him to open up a giant portal to hell and then immediately kill him and be like that way you don't create the Elysium configuration and hell is just open and we take over Earth. It is funny when he comes up with the sketch for the Elysium configuration because it's just like a bunch of some walls of a box and then all these squiggly lines yes, yeah. in the middle. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't look as well designed as your other box. There should be like an arrow pointing and it says like trap demons here. <laughs> and that's where he's showing uh, later because, wow, do we get a lot of good computing during yeah. this time. But he's like, I just can't get the energy to last longer than a few seconds. Yeah. And it's in the squiggly lines. And Angelique's like, sometimes all you need are a few seconds. Well, the other big thing in this section that we got to talk about is our new Cenobites. There's these doofy twin security oh guards yep. that are like the comic relief of this movie, I guess you could say. They're twins, which is weird because this was like a thing. There's also twin security guards in Terminator or, well, they're not really twins. They just use twins to get the effect. But anyway, these two twins are investigating the noises going on in the building because at this point, like there's office spaces in the building that are now hanging with chains and <laughs> yeah. have like blood <laughs> on the walls. It's really, that would be quite the day at the office. But anyway, so they're investigating and they're just like, I don't know. The, the comedy writing here isn't exactly crackling. Oh, this is painful. First of all, I mean, just like from a nerdy standpoint, why why do you have two security guards? Like, it's just like an office building, right? Like, and they, they do sweeps together and they're like fully armed. Like, it's a little bizarre, but like, I'll let it go. But also, I mean, I, it, there's a scene in my mind where the guy's like, if you're going to hire me for security, you got to hire my twin brother too, because we do everything <laughs> together. 
and they're like, all right, we can, we can afford it. <laughs> well, and they have this moment where they get separated and scared by some jump scare. And then they're like, from now on, we stick together, mm-hmm. which is going to come back ironically because when they come upon Pinhead and I think Angelique is there and when they're like, put your hands up or whatever, they're holding their guns on Pinhead. Oh yeah. And then they get turned into this Cenobite that is sort of smashed together. Like there's some sort of like pinion in between them that's screwing them together. But then there's also these like spiked half masks that mm-hmm. are pushing them together. I mean, every Hellraiser has got to kind of offer you a new Cenobite. How do you feel about this Cenobite? I really like this dude. Like, I, I love the scene where they are turned into the Siamese twin, I guess. It's really gnarly to, like, watch that, those drills go into their face and then, like, kind of, like, stretch out and swirl their faces together. I don't know. To me, this is one of the highlights of this movie. I really like this part. Even though their performance before that is stupid, but I, I like them. It's no CD, Cenobite, but it's Okay. <laughs> I'm still missing my CD guy and my camera guy from part three. Why couldn't they come along? People were still listening to CDs at this point. And there's no chatterer in this one either. Well, they have the chatterer dogs. The dogs are like dog chatterers. Okay. I feel like in general across all Hellraiser movies, there's like the the rules are loose in terms of like what happens to the Cenobites. Because like they send them all back to hell in part one and then they all come back in part two, right? So... I would expect that the Chatterer is still up and running, right? And then at the end of part three, they send camera guy and CD guy all back to hell. So you're right, like, they should show up. And I think it's kind of dumb. It's it's like a missed opportunity to keep, to not just reuse those people, you know? Well, I mean, I think the out-of-story reason is they just want to make new Cenobites because, I don't know, maybe they're planning to make toys. Yeah. In story, I can justify it. It's like, you know, they're not all going to come along for everything. You know, maybe Chatterer's got other shit to do. He can't just show (laughs) up here at this stupid building. Like, he's got shit to do. Female Cenobite, she's got shit to do. They're busy. I like to think that Pinhead was like, you can't come this time because you fucked it up last time, you know? You know who never seems to come back is that fat dude dude with the little round glasses or whatever i think his name is butterball yeah butterball gets no love i don't remember seeing him in any of the other ones i think it's because pinhead runs like he runs a tight ship if you screw something up if butterball screwed something up he might have been mm-hmm. you'll never see him again yeah he's off the team rule of thumb never put anyone in charge named butterball all right Just, <laughs> that's never never gonna work in your favor you guys want a fun script fact yes this is one of those cases where i think again miramax made the better choice because in the original script, these twin characters, they don't show up until the space scene. Huh? Like the scene in the present is just one security guard. Who's a woman who basically runs into that dog. She chases her down a hall. She gets into an elevator and the elevator is like going down and she thinks she's safe, but like he was going past the lobby and it goes like minus one, minus two, minus three. And it goes all the way to hell. And basically she, finds herself in this black void and then it just cuts away and it's implied she dies. And then later in the movie, like when he summons them through the space robot, these twin dudes just show up. I like that someone was like, why don't we show the creation of those guys? And I think that's an improvement over the script. I like the scene, the creation of those guys too. And when they showed up, I remembered from the last time I watched it, I was like, oh God, these two, that's right. They're like, conversation before they split up is just you know he's talking to his brother about 
yeah, I, I, yeah, I, they're wondering if I would be with, you know, a guy who, or, or, who's a girl now, but is a guy. And, oh, did he have it cut off? Yeah, I guess if it's cut off, sure, I'd be with them. Yeah, that's really aged well in 2022. Yeah. Like, transgender yeah. jokes, like, oof, not cool. It made me uncomfortable, I will say. Yeah, it was just such a weird choice. And just like this conversation is just, yeah, ugh. Sebastian, do you do you really like the CD Cenobite more than these guys? I like it because it's goofy. I like CD Cenobite. I mean, look, it's dumb. I do. I are you are you asking me? Do I think CD Cenobite is dumb? Yes, very very dumb. Okay, all right. But uh, do I like it? Yes. Yeah, I agree. I like when he's throwing he's throwing CDs at people. I, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Rodney, we're physical media people over here. I mean, look, we love streaming, but we love our CDs. We love our vinyl. We love our Blu-rays or laser discs right that's true and so it's like a commentary on how he uses that to kill those who are non-believers that's right (laughs) (laughs) here's here's my big question which maybe you want to ask at the end but like which one do you like better three or four three i like three better oh see that's where we disagree i much prefer this movie over three Wow. I think I think 3 is a real train wreck of a movie. It is, but it's a fun train yeah. wreck. I find 3 to be incredibly fun. It's silly and it's goofy. And I can see why if you are super like hardcore, you if you feel like that the Hellraiser mythos and everything is kind of sacred and you don't want it like fucked with, I can see why you wouldn't like 3 because 3 is obviously they're just trying to make it into like a nightmare on Elm Street or something. And they're just kind of throwing all the gravitas out the window and just kind of doing something like typical slasher Freddy Krueger type movie. However, I find it fun to watch. Like I can watch three any old day. You can throw that shit on and I'll be like, ah, Hellraiser three. Good time. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, like, three's got cool parts. I love the part where, like, the the whole nightclub gets slaughtered. That's the highlight of the film. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. And, like, there's the part where, like, you know, the statue eats the dude or whatever. Like, that. that right. Yeah. It's just, I just hate everything with the reporter. I hate everything with, like, the girl that's, like, staying with. There's just, like, it's missing the fact that, like, it's about the box and the Cenobites. And so much of the movie is a reporter being like, I'm going to figure out what's going on. Right? And, like... I know what's going on. Like, you're just, he's like not part of the movie. But I know, we're not here to talk about three. You're wrong. It's not as good as four. Four is better. You would feel differently about that plot if you watched some of the straight-to-video movies that you (laughs) haven't watched. Because they're all about, like, I need to figure this out. Nothing happens for the whole movie until the end. And you don't know what's going on, but you don't friggin' care. Anyway, that's fine. I don't hate uh this movie either so if you like this movie better than three i don't have a problem with that i'm just explaining why i do like three i get it i'm giving you a hard time it's not that i hate three you know i I just watched three like two nights ago for like my third time i've seen all these a bunch but like while i was watching it i was thinking i can't wait to get to bloodline because that's the one i like i just like it i fucking like the twins i i just feel like part four at least delivers on the gore that i want out of a hellraiser film and Pinhead's just way cooler in this movie. I just, you're right. I He gets to talk a lot more. Although in part three, he does have that cool part where he acts like he's Jesus in the church. And he says, 
Oh, I forget what the quote is, but it's awesome. Remember that part? I forget the quote, too. But I will also say this about this movie. This movie feels more like an honest attempt at wrapping up the Hellraiser mythology. It's not successful, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's trying. It feels like a legitimate attempt. And you can feel that there is some Clive Barker in there, whereas... Three doesn't feel like there's any Clive Barker in there. I think that's what it is. It, it's three doesn't have the the Barker feel. And I remember, look, I saw part three and four in theaters when they came out. And I remember part four feeling like that was a sloppy movie. This space stuff is pretty bonkers, which we'll talk about when we get there. But like, it really did feel like the ending of the story. It felt like they like brought it to a an ending that makes sense. And like, yes. so that's why to me, Hellraiser is just four films, right? They made four films and then they figured out a way to close the gate forever. And I, I like that. I agree with you that logically this seems like the right ending. It's just executed arguably terribly. It's fair. Let's wrap up this segment. I mean, basically what happens is Pinhead chains up Angelique and he kills Merchant. He actually cuts off his head which is pretty shocking that's pretty awesome for like the main character he, he died in the he died in the first part too right but not with his head, head being cut, cut off. Yeah. true true does he have the best death in the movie i mean if you consider getting his head severed to be the best death well like it's like he gets a chain through the throat and then the chain comes back out with blades on it and his head falls off that's gnarly that is pretty cool i think it's the best death i think so all right i think we can all agree best death it is surprising i was i, I remember being like oh shit they killed that dude i mean i'm not completely solid on the details i think they try to open up the building open up the elysium configuration and we get some lights flying around there's like a moment that looks really poorly composited oh, yeah. where doug bradley is standing there and there's light going on behind him but it doesn't work, obviously, because Pinhead isn't taken away to hell. But then Kim Myers gets a hold of the lament configuration and uses that to send them the, the Cenobites into hell, right? This is the thing I hate about Fran uh, Hellraiser. How, like, for some people, they got to, like, sit, like, in a sweaty room for weeks trying to, like, solve the box. They, like, don't eat, you know? And, like... This this woman, like, she literally just, she doesn't even know what it is. She just, like, picks it up, and she's like, go back to hell, and, like, right. pushes one, <laughs> as though there's, like, a button on the box that says, like, return demon. Back to hell. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, like, it's, like, the whole point of, of the box is how complicated it is, and I hate in these movies how these people just, like, touch the box, and it just, like, automatically works for them. Yeah. And it always works the way they want. Like, I want to see one where someone tries to use the box to send the demons back, and she just summons more demons, and they kill her. <laughs> Why would the box send them back to begin with? That's not what it's for. It's for bringing them there. I mean, it's been that way since the beginning, though. Like, even in Hellraiser 1, she sends them back with the box. Yeah. It's very lazy. Yeah. She literally has a line where she's like, I hope this works in reverse or something like that. And I'm like, well, and it did. You sure lucked out there, lady. <laughs> I am just never have been 100% clear on what the box can and cannot do. Yep. I'm just like, the box can just do like whatever needs to be done. The box will do it. And sometimes it seems like there's like you literally just push a button and it just flops out of your hand and opens a gate to hell. And it's like. I just, I don't even know what the toy maker designed that's so great about it. Like, Occasionally, there's a consistent sort of motion where somebody takes it and then reassembles it. And then they like rub their thumb around the circle and that's what opens it. But it's not consistent. 
and yes, it's used for whatever they want the character right. and the plot to do at that moment. Well, then in the in the most recent uh, Hellraiser, you know, they did something different with it. But yeah, it was like now all of a sudden it's cutting you. That happens in part three. There's definitely okay. like a, a knife came out of it and cut her hands because I remember being like, oh, they didn't just like make that up for part. 11. Yeah, but you know what I didn't like about that was then it, that thing was just popping up all the time and they're just like stabbing yeah. people with it to get oh. them chained. That's just like, if I just stab you with this, now you're going to get chained. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's a spoiler for the new movie, but like that is one of those plot points. That, like the whole movie revolves around that concept, but it it really goes against the whole point is like you play with the box, therefore you get punished. Not like someone else plays with the box and cuts you with it and now you yes. get taken to hell. Like literally, I picture there's a scene of someone like sitting in a fiery cell in hell. And they're like, so what are you in for? Like, oh, my my friend played with this evil box and I accidentally cut my finger on it. Right. Exactly. Like, I don't even <laughs> think Satan would think that was fair. Even Satan would be like, you can go to heaven. Like, this, this is lame. You shouldn't be here. Yeah, this is bullshit. <laughs> you didn't earn it. Yeah, yeah. You, didn't, you didn't want it. Get out of here. <laughs> I mean, if you want to get really nerdy, there's that line in part two where Pinhead says, it's not the hands, but desires that summons us, right? So it's yeah. actually, the new one is actually like breaking the rules that were previously established, right? Like the whole point is you summoned the demons, not like your neighbor summoned them and you were home. Right. Although I will say, look, part four breaks those rules too like those security guards did nothing wrong they're just wandering around you know they're just trying to do their job right but they weren't killed by the box they were killed by pinhead who's already been summoned yeah, i feel like true. if you run into pinhead all bets are off okay like, that's fair he's gonna fuck your shit up that's fair with his pinhead power i mean i know that's loosey-goosey and in the first movie that's not how it works but you know in a horror franchise you gotta have your horror icon able to kill people whenever they want no and penhead can do whatever he wants yeah well that's fair apparently the original cut of this film was like close to two hours right and then they brought the other guy in to do reshoots and cut it that makes me feel like they probably did shoot a lot of the stuff that's in the original screenplay and then got rid of it i'm sure they did i i assume the longer cut would just move too slowly and they were just like this is not what people want people want snappy well, let's get to the horror right well i mean i think when you're talking about the mid 90s too like people weren't making like two hour and 18 minute killer clown movies <laughs> you yeah. know like it just wasn't a thing now with the whole elevated horror genre you can get away with more i mean i think the new hellraiser is like clocks in around yep. two hours it's not short back then just the way distribution worked and getting in so many screenings a night and all that it's just you couldn't really put out a horror movie that was two hours long any studio i think would have probably asked it to be shorter yeah that makes sense the the screenwriter talks about in the there's a there's a little prologue before the script begins where he talks about how like uh, you know, there were a lot of problems with the production and budget cuts, and uh, he doesn't really call out anyone specifically, but he you can tell he was displeased, you know? Doug Bradley said it was hell, too. Oh, well, probably because, like, they made him go back to the more complicated makeup effects, you know, for his right, yeah. out the pins or whatever. All right, well, let's talk about the final act of this movie. We jump back to 2127. We're back in the Minos, the spaceship. And honestly, Rodney may feel differently, but at this point, I feel like the movie becomes kind of boring. Like this last chunk, 
It becomes just another alien kind of knockoff with people running around hallways that are supposed to be spaceship hallways for no real good reason. Pinhead and Angelique manage to get out of their uh, prison or whatever you want to call it because some stupid soldier like finds it and he's like, hey, what's in there or whatever. And he like blasts the lock with his laser gun and lets them out. Well, no, he hears like screaming children inside. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. He thinks that there's, for some reason, children trapped in this room. I was hoping Cortland Mead would show up. I was too. (laughs) Here's the thing. This whole space sequence this is where the movie really feels like like a Cinemax movie. Like it, it feels like Leprechaun Four in space. Like it just, it looks really cheesy. It the set looks really bad. But I also kind of enjoy it because this is where most of the kills happen. Like it's a bunch of like Space Marines getting killed one by one. They aren't really characters at all. But at least this part delivers on the gore. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I never can really get into this part. And I like gore as much as the next guy. I remember actually seeing this chunk of the movie when the movie came out. I worked for Sony theaters and I had a friend who ran one of the other theaters in town in Boston. And I would go hang out with him on some nights and we would go to this drag bar near where he worked. His theater always got the cheesy horror movies. So I would wait for him to get off work and watch what was ever playing I, I saw like man's best friend i saw lord of the illusions that way like a whole bunch oh. of cheesy 90 horror movies but i remember specifically catching the end of this movie and i think i only saw the end but i just remember thinking man this is bad and i've just never been able to get into it like and i love space horror but for some reason this is just not working for me it's not like suspenseful at all it just feels hacked together and i mean we should say like the editing in this movie is pretty dismal like there's some really bad cuts there's like shots of pinhead where like you can tell the focus puller was i don't know drunk or something like it gets blurry there's just parts of this movie that look and are cut together very poorly yeah i mean again like the gist I get is that after they signed, after the director signed on, they started cutting the budget. And so, again, you know, it's like, I get it. Like, you agreed to make a whatever million dollar film, and suddenly it's like, make cuts, and those cuts are going to come out of the spaceship set, right? Yeah. I'm with you. It doesn't look good. In fact, my wife watched it for the first time with me, and when the movie opened on a spaceship, she went, oh, what? <laughs> and, like, I remember being in the theater and being like, we're gonna we're on a spaceship? This... Like, Spaceship does not feel Hellraiser to me. I will say, uh, fun fact for listeners, the actual visual effects of, like, the space station, like, closing up in the spaceships, right? That's all done by Blur Studios, which uh, is Tim Miller's company, who did, like, Deadpool and uh, Love Death Robots on Netflix. Because I was watching the credits, and it was, like, spaceship effects done by Blur, and you can see Tim Miller's credit. I was like, ah, check that out. Now, he had nothing to do with the the sets that they're acting on, and that's why those look bad. You're talking about the CG spaceship. The actual CG spaceship shit, yeah. Which is okay. It's very 90s. It's fine. It gets the job done. At the time, it looked good for the t- It certainly did not look impressive. It wasn't like, oh my god, that looks like space. But it, it holds up, you know? I don't, I don't think it's laughably bad. How do you guys feel about Angelique's new look? Apparently, Angelique is a Cenobite here. She's supposed to sort of evoke a nun, like with a habit, with like her flayed skin coming off her head and all that. I think she looks awesome. 
I really like this design. I think the movie does a bad job of letting me know that's her. Like, I just thought she was, I mean, maybe I'm stupid, but I was like, is that just a different Cenobite that's come with him from hell? Like, it's missing the part where you see her turned into that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think she looks great as well. Um, I knew it was her, but I would have also liked to have seen her become the Cenobite. Yeah, there's no context for her. So we don't know why this has been chosen as her Cenobite look. There's no dramatic irony to it that I can discern unless you think that having an evil person look sort of like a nun, I guess, is ironic. So it's cool, but I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of it. There's nothing behind it that I could tell. I think the gist of it is that like Pinhead has like won the battle, right? Even though the last time we saw them, like they both just got sucked into the box, right? And like that was that. The idea is like they went back to hell and he's now in charge. And so he turned her into a Cenobite. And now she works for him. Yeah. I mean, I got that much out of okay. it. Okay. I'm just saying, you know, contextually, why does she look the way she... Oh, like why that design? I, I have... Because it's freaky looking. But like, yeah. you're right. It's supposed to have like a nun vibe, which I don't totally see, but... It's cool. It's like her the skin of her scalp is like peeled back yeah. and then like pinned with chains to her shoulder blades. It looks really painful. It does. <laughs> yeah. I got that. Yes, it was the, you know, the corporation hostile takeover had happened and, and she she didn't get fired, but now she has to work for Pinhead. <laughs> but uh, I just I really hate this whole space sequence. I do. And I, I said to Sebastian as we were watching this, I was like, you should love this. You, you know, it's alien-esque. And he was like, I don't like this either. And it's a bummer because, yes, Rodney, I agree with you. We're finally getting a bunch of kills. But it's so weird because I was commenting, Sebastian and I were both commenting on the length of this. And it's like, wow, it's like it's 84 minutes. And I don't feel it until this last segment where I'm like, this feels like the longest 84 minutes of my life. And I didn't feel that way up into it. But like, we're here at this, you know, this ending. And it just goes on for too long for me. What I recommend anybody watching this movie do is as soon as you're done watching this movie, go watch Event Horizon because Event Horizon is the superior version of this Hellraiser in space idea. Like, and I understand this movie had budgetary constraints and didn't have the budget of Event Horizon, but it is actually a cool idea hell in space i do like that yeah you know if you want to see it done much better just go put on event horizon because it's almost a hellraiser movie i do love the idea that like if you open the box on a spaceship it still links to hell and like hell just comes onto your spaceship i think that's cool and again like i i think pinhead's got some great moments here it strangely just feels wrong and uh i i think it's a combination of a lot of things i think it's even though Sorry, Bruce is it Bruce Ramsey? Bruce Ramsey plays the lead in all three segments. He's strangely the worst in the spaceship segment. Right. Like he's painfully bad, right? And also so is the whatever, the woman he's talking to, the like head of security or whatever. It's Rimmer. Rimmer, Rimmer. <laughs> how can I forget Rimmer? It's like all of that plus the sets look bad. But you do get like I don't know, I like the dog. We didn't even really talk about the dog, but yeah. like I think you get the most of the dog in this sequence and I think that's pretty cool. 
you get to see the twins kill a dude by like splitting in half and then reforming around him. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. This idiot Marine or whatever goes looking for his buddy who's already dead and he gets like sandwiched between the twins. He makes no attempt to run at all. He's like, I wonder what he's like, Ooh, we gonna, uh, it's going to be kinky. What are, what are we doing boys? And I'm like, run motherfucker. Like, or shoot them, you know? Yeah, and there's a moment where I feel is like really obviously a clunky reshoot where Merchant and Rimmer are like going to leave. And so they have this like conversation on a hallway where he's like, I need to stop this. And she's like, no, don't stay here. And he's like, I'm going to stay here, but don't worry. I don't want to die. Like what's Pinhead doing at this point? Like he's just kind of like letting them walk away and then he's just wandering around, you know, and then he goes back and we get this thing where he essentially tricks Pinhead. It's not really him. It's a hologram of him. He's actually on the escape shuttle getting away. And then the whole space station turns into the Elysium configuration and obliterates Pinhead with light. And he like explodes all gorily. I do like how it ends. I genuinely love that the space station folds into like a giant version of the box. And that is what contains like the infinite light, you know, Elysium configuration and in my mind, that strangely like makes sense for how you would seal the gate to hell and permanently destroy Pinhead, right? Like, yeah. I don't think it's destroying hell. It's just sort of like, I don't know, sending them back permanently or whatever. Like, it just feels right for some reason, even though it's goofy. But I remember in the theater when it, when it folded up into the box being like, credit where credit is due. I did not see that coming. No, I remember even when I saw it in the 90s thinking, oh, that was a clever idea. Good way to wrap it up. You know, you're always looking for a new way to kill your iconic monster. And this was a good one. Now, I did read that this was considered a happy ending. So there was more of a downer ending in the script. Rodney, do you know what it was? Yeah. I mean, basically, um, the character's name is Paul, the main character. Paul Merchant, I guess, at this point in the movie. Basically, he sacrifices himself. Like, one of the big differences that's not really important is that there's another woman on the space station with him who basically in the movie is replaced by this female, like, space marine, right? But she's been working with him. And anyway, he let, he helps her get to an escape pod, and she escapes right before the dog gets her, right? And he stays behind and faces off against Pinhead, and then he says, like, welcome to Oblivion and, like, pushes a button and then they both die. So there wasn't any hologram. That was the thing they added to get him out of it. The hologram happens in the in the, the script as well. It just happens. Oh. There's a part earlier, which is cooler in the script, where he, Pinhead, like, sends a chain at him and it goes through him. And that's when he realizes it's a hologram and that Paul is elsewhere on the ship trying to help the girl escape. And then he faces him off to, like, you know, prevent him from, I don't know, like, I don't know where he's going to go. But point is, the only difference is that Paul dies in the script, original script, and he lives in the movie. That's kind of what I figured must have happened. I think it's cooler if he dies, because, like, it's like the bloodline ends with him, but his bloodline finally fulfills the fate of undoing what his great 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 grandfather did you know well and nobody gives two shits about bruce ramsey so right i wouldn't care at all to see him die i wouldn't be crying like that would be a happier ending i just want to give rodney uh mad props for getting paul's name because i was like what's his name because he's like when he's in the 17th century france he's philippe and then he's john 
in the 90s and then in the future he's Paul and Rodney like just was like yeah he's Paul now and I just was like who what are you talking about that's only because I I flipped to that in the script I'm still impressed I think one of the one of the biggest issues with the movie is like in all three stages they don't do a good job of making you feel what that character wants right like the toy maker in the first part like again in the in the original script you get that he he's doing it for money and fame right but in in this movie like it's clear he like took a job for some money and then he's just like looks through the wrong window and like shows up there blah 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 i guess you kind of get where the architect's coming from he just wants to be a successful architect but like paul in the future i don't know from the minute the movie starts he just doesn't seem like a real human being right he's no. like you have to listen to me i just wish the movie had a part where he said don't you understand? Like my my family has been responsible for this. Maybe he right. does. He say this in the movie. I feel like he sort of says it, but it's he sort of does. He says it like he's on Prozac, and I'm like, I wouldn't believe you, even <laughs> if I did see the demons, right? I mean, that's a huge problem. Is in the beginning of the movie, he's acting so robotic. I'm like, is he going to turn out to be like a robot or something? Like you feel like there's going to be some sort of twist where he's evil or something because he's not acting like a normal person. He's just kind of staring and being like, you don't understand. You don't know what you're messing with. Yeah, that kind of shit. You know, and you're like, oh, okay. It's just really poorly put across. Like they needed a better actor and they really needed to do what you're saying, which is hammer out this character. Even if he is a different person, like create a through line here, you know, that makes sense. And I, maybe it's just because the actor's not giving it to us or that it's not there in the script. But yeah, you feel just kind of disconnected from him the whole time. Yeah, I don't know what he wants. Even when he's being an architect, he wants to be an architect. That's not like a character motivation. <laughs> he needed to want something throughout the whole story, even if it's to undo all of this, you know, by the end or whatever. It's implied in the script that like the whole generation, the whole bloodline, they keep having dreams about this. And like, right. There are these, mo there's like these little flashes of like the, like a little architect boy having like remembering his grandmother telling him like our bloodline or your bloodline will like solve it or fix it. Right. So like it comes across a bit more that like the space version of the guy, he's been having these dreams and he also is like, my mission is to stop it. And I mean, you get that in the movie that like, he's totally like my mission is to do this. Like he built a whole fucking space station to do it. You get it, but you don't feel it. Exactly. There's a difference between knowing the information technically and feeling it. And you do not feel it at all. That's exactly what it is. It, it's like he's saying the lines. I mean, again, uh, it's hard to say who directed what parts because there were two directors and reshoots. But like, that's kind of what happens when you hire like a visual effects person to direct actors, right? It's like, I guarantee you a different director could have gotten him to say the lines a bit better than the way he's delivering them here. You know, like they're being delivered. Like, I, like again, it really feels like a late night Cinemax movie, but really light on the, the soft core porn parts, right? Yeah. Like... There's, there's one sex scene in this movie, and it should have had seven. <laughs> Without question, the screenplay is better. It's just not leagues better, you know? I think in every case where we have these sort of artifacts where we've got a movie, and then we've got maybe another version of the movie or a screenplay or some other artifact that tells us what the original intent was, I think 100% in every time... A combination of the two is the thing that really would have yes. been the thing to do. 
Just because a horrible producer came up with an idea, it doesn't mean it's the worst idea. It's like Zack Snyder's Justice League, I think, is the perfect example of this. Zack Snyder's Justice League is better. Yes. Okay? But it's still not the best version of that movie. Correct. You need to cut out of it things, maybe throw in a couple of the jokes that were in the Joss Whedon version because they would have been good, like Aquaman sitting on the lasso of truth. Like Zack Snyder like took that out of his version because he didn't shoot it, so it's all about his ego, but it's like, you should have left that in. The perfect version of the movie is somewhere in between the two, and I feel like in every case, that's how it works out. The real crime is you're like, oh, if somebody could just combine these two things, then we'd have a really good movie. I think you're right. Imagine someone gave me a budget of $60 million and said, you get to make the next Hellraiser movie, and you, you're, you are not bound by the lore in any way. Just make the movie you want. I could make the per like my perfect version and it would still be wrong to someone else, right? Someone else is going to be like, oh, he got this part wrong or whatever. And also it's like there's not just there's not just the one script and the one movie. There's so many steps of rewrites in between and different visual effects. And so like who's to say what's the best possible way to make Hellraiser Bloodline, right? I think at the end of the day, you still end up with Pinhead on a spaceship, right? And like either you're down for that or you're not. I think Pinhead on the spaceship could be great. You just need the money to make it look good. Yeah, that's that's really what's what was. You need the here. money to do it right. I mean, if anybody could be in space, it could be Pinhead. I think yep. Event Horizon kind of proved that it could be great. The problem is they tried to do it for cheap, and yeah. that's going to look like shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Event Horizon is really like one of the best horror films ever made, and they really nail it. And they might as well call it Hellraiser in space because that's what it is, right? But still, having said all of that. I don't know what it is about this movie, but I, I like it. I like it because it's ambitious. I like this trying to, like, tell an origin story of the box and, like, bring closure to the franchise. Again, I think Doug Bradley's great. And I think there's a lot of good gory moments. It's a shame that the acting is so mediocre and that the editing is so all over the place. And you're just like, wait, what's going on? I, I think that's sort of the problem you're going to run into anytime you tell a story that's like three different movies in one. Like you never have enough time to spend with any given character for it to like fully make sense. I mean, I think this movie suffers really heavily from being chopped up and reshot and not having enough money. I think unfortunately it's disastrous to the movie, but I do agree with you that like I like the idea of it and I like the general story that we get it's just so fucked with that it's just a bad movie ultimately unfortunately like look clearly this was the one that killed the theatrical releases if this movie had made a fuck ton of money and everyone loved it they would have found a way to bring pinhead back three years later in cinemas right but exactly i i can't argue with the fact that like after this they were like maybe we don't Maybe we don't even spend that level of money on them anymore, right? They spent $4 million on this movie, which is not a lot of movie, even in the 90s. Yeah. And it grossed $9 million worldwide. So they eked out some profit there. Yeah. But to your point, and this ties into the whole why did it fail and all that, it was so poorly received and it did so badly that, yes, from here on out, we get nothing but cheap, cheap, cheap straight to video shit so you you have to accept that this movie completely derailed a pretty premier horror franchise i mean 
Hellraiser, you know, maybe wasn't Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween or Friday the 13th level, but it was right up there. I mean, it's bigger than Chucky, and Chucky kept getting movies in theaters. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of a shame, really. It's sad. Pinhead deserves better. Pinhead does deserve better. I don't know what it is. I I just think... There's something about the Hellraiser series. I think you brought this up when you saw it when you were a teenager that like it's not like fun. And so therefore it doesn't really lend itself to like a good date night. Right. Like there's not a lot of laughs in Hellraiser films. There are technically protagonists, but you're not like rooting for them, you know, like. Yeah, they're usually terrible people. Yes. Terrible people doing terrible things. And there is a little bit. I mean, I think Pinhead has a a little bit of humor. I mean, there's some irony, like you're saying, and how this different Cenobites come about and, and whatnot. But it is it's like it's kind of an endurance thing ironically and this might just be my own weird thing but i kind of feel like pinhead is the most honorable character in the movies usually like i mean he's doing horrible things but he's pure in his intentions and he's just doing his job yeah he shows up on time he's very excited about bringing you suffering he delivers what he promised enthusiastic about his job and you're the one who opened the stupid box so you deserve it like you asked for it. He's just given what you what you want. He's a great manager. <laughs> I want to work on his team. I want to be a part of his team. He's he's a real good manager. He is true to his word. I would like to do a I'd like to see a series where he and the other Cenobites like open a car dealership and they <laughs> and they do one of those like shots, you know, like it's like a the shot starts on Pinhead's face and then goes wide up into the sky like a drone shot to show all the staff and they're like, We have such cars to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone from Hulu is listening, there you go. I just I got you a, a new series. I think this is a case of like, I've seen this maybe three or four times. I don't actually know. But like, I feel exactly the same every time I watch it, right? Like my, my opinion has not changed. It satisfies what I kind of want from a Hellraiser film. I can't obviously stop wishing it were a better movie. I wish in an alternate timeline this had done well and I'd gotten more Hellraiser films in my life, right? Like You got them. I have them. I just don't want to watch them, right? <laughs> I mean real Hellraiser films with like budgets, you know? I think this is one of those movies I enjoy, but if anyone said Hellraiser Bloodline is a piece of shit and I hate it, I'd be like, you're right and I'm not going to defend it, right? I guess that's what it comes down to. Is like I find it charming for being different and I appreciate them attempting to to end it. And I think it's like, a better ending to the series than like Freddy's dead is than to the nightmare on Elm street series. Like, I feel like this is tonally correct for Hellraiser. It's just a case of like, as we talked about a bunch of problems with, you know, low budgets and reshoots and, and studio interference. But look at the end of the day, if you want to see people getting pulled apart by chains, this still movie delivers. All right. Well, I'm going to go fire up my Terminator robot, open the lament configuration, and sandwich myself between twin security guards. That's fine. That's what I'm planning to do tonight, too. <laughs> Sounds like a good time, on. <laughs> they can be two Rodneys. Ooh. Oh, I feel so uncomfortable. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe, 
and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.